Well, one last Merry Christmas to you all. And I'm so glad to see you today. When I got to the church this morning, the sun was, it was just coming up. It was so beautiful. And it was coming up over the top of the manger scene out here. And as a matter of fact, you can see a picture. Of course, you know how we do. We get our phones out. We take pictures of things we see. And I got a nice picture of that. It's a unique picture of the sun coming up over the manger scene. And I was so grateful for all of you and what you did during this Christmas season to present Christ to uh, one another and to others uh, in all that you did. And uh, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for all the beautiful music. Gentlemen, thank you. Craig, thank you for visiting us. Good to have a little Lutheran in the house every once in a while just to keep us, you know, so, so nice. Such beautiful, beautiful. And I, we appreciate your spirit. And, and ladies, were there any men? Ladies, thanks for the bells. They're so beautiful year-round. Yes. Thank you. But it wouldn't be Christmas without them. We really love that. This was especially beautiful today. And we're grateful. And we love each of you. I know, I think on a day like this, are you like I am? You know, I think I jump into things emotionally pretty heavy. So, so when, when Christmas is over, it's, it's a little bit like, oh, ouch. A little bit of ouch. The cookies are gone now. What, what are we going to do? And uh, it's, you can't help but think there's a little emotional letdown in there. And in the life of the church, there's an ebb and flow in the life of the church. It's always been that way. If you study through church history, it's fascinating to see how really thoughtful people through church history have, have kind of paid attention to and in some ways controlled. In other ways, you can't control the ebb and flow of church life and the, and the calendar and the different things that historically churches emphasize through the year. And so it's just the kind of the way of things. So you have the, the big thing here, and then you have the quiet day after Christmas when people who really love the Lord in a special way just want to come and maybe have one little last echo of, uh, of, the, of the celebration. And I am so, so grateful to you. Love you so much. Lois and I do. We're, we're so grateful to be here. Um, there are a lot of us here. It's not just us, but, but I'm, I'm talking right now. So I, I just want to tell you I love you and we love you. We're thankful for you. And we're so grateful that at this time in our life, God's put us here at the Bethel Church. We sure love this church. And we're so grateful for all who have gone before to make this church the, the wonderful church that it is. We certainly have to keep working on stuff, don't we? But we're grateful for this. And I, and I also thank God, don't you, for every other gospel preaching church in the world and in our area here where God's people are. And we're to this morning, they're gathering and they're giving and praise. So it's, it's pretty wonderful. And as you know, we've been in the series uh, where we have been looking at Jesus and bragging on Jesus. And, and we studied and, and we, we, uh, we've more or less reveled, rejoiced. Uh, pay, we haven't done word-for-word studies through these texts, the text of uh, obviously John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 and Revelation 1. We have taught through Revelation 1 in the past. You were probably here for that, the vision of the risen Christ. But what we've really done is just kind of, we've just gazed upon the truth about who Jesus is during the season of Advent and Christmas tide, in order for us just to see who Jesus is and and then let the good happen that happens when God's people see who Jesus is. And so we're super grateful. We're grateful for the voices of little children in the church. May it always be. Amen? May it always be. Seriously, may it always be. 
that we have voices of little children in the church and the voice of this risen Christ that comes ringing out in, in John 1. And Bill, good, good job. Bill's a good reader, isn't he? Uh, good job on reading about Jesus today. We're going to do that again because this is just so very sweet. Do you just love the story of Jesus' birth? I just love it. There is no story more wonderful in all the world than the story of, of Jesus and his birth. I'm glad the story of Jesus' birth is in the Bible. There's just a little bit about Jesus' childhood in the Bible. Very, very little. You have the nativity in some of the gospel accounts. But after that, you have 20 silent years. And the Bible really says nothing about Jesus as a little boy or as a young adult. And the Gospel of Mark is the only place in the Bible that tells us what Jesus might have done in the silent years between his birth and his public ministry. Mark says that Jesus was a tecton. Was the, was the word tecton from Nazareth. And the word is often translated what? Carpenter. Carpenter says the man with strong hands. Shake hands with this guy sometime. Jesus was a man that built things with his hands. Jesus probably would have had a, a significant handshake. And, and probably for more reasons than we, than we realize, Mark translates this word tecton, uh, carpenter. But it's really interesting to study that a little bit. Uh, it's a person who makes things, but the word does not necessarily mean that the person worked with wood. Though there is an old tradition that Jesus worked with wood to make yokes and plows, that would been, it would have been very unlikely for a man to be able to make a living doing that in the ancient Near East because, of the, because it was denuded of forests at the time. There may have been, been more likely that Jesus was a builder or a construction worker who worked with stone. Jesus' references in his teaching were never to building with wood. But he made significant number of references in his teaching to building with stone. And he frequently mentioned that. Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth was a small village about 300 in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. And the nearest major city was a growing city uh, of Sephoris. It was a city that was being built on a hill just two or three miles away from Nazareth there. And it was built on the Via Maris, a major trade route. And so it was being built in honor of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who ruled Galilee. And it was being built as a, on the, on a, as a monument on the hill to Herod and a gleaming jewel of Hellenistic culture. So Josephus called it the ornament of all of Galilee, Sephora he's talking about. There's no doubt during the silent years of Jesus, there was much work for construction workers a couple of miles away from Nazareth in the village of Sephora. Now, on our trip to the Holy Land, um, we visited the boyhood home of Jesus. It was really fascinating. It was a beautiful spring day, gorgeous spring day. Matter of fact, here in Michigan, it was March, and you know what it's like in Michigan in March. It's snowy, and it's spring only in your imagination. But in the Holy Land, in the north of Israel, it was a verdant spring, beautiful spring. 
flowers were blossoming, fruit was growing, sun was shining, green and beautiful, rolling countryside. It was beautiful. That first morning we came in, the Tel Aviv went up to Haifa, and we stayed there. We got there after dark. So we stayed in a, a Carmelite nunnery, which I usually don't hang out in nunneries. It was just an exception to my normal rule. And, and we, were, we were hanging out in the Carmelite nunnery. We hadn't seen that it was setting uh, high on a precipice overlooking the Mediterranean. And in the morning, it was a glorious morning when the sun was coming. We walked out. It was just like breathtaking to watch the shores of the, 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 the ocean breaking on the shores of the Mediterranean there. And that was the day that we started up into our tour of Galilee in the north of Israel. And one of the places that we went was Nazareth. And it was, it was interesting. We stood on the precipice there in Nazareth, the famous precipice. Remember that? Where Jesus escaped the crowd and he was rejected by the people from his hometown. It's something interesting that Nazareth is kind of famous for missing it. Famous for not getting it. Famous for rejecting Jesus. Imagine that. From there, we drove to Sephoris, and, and, and there was still much to see in Sephoris because of the Hellenistic influence. A lot of things were built in the name of Herod and at the bequest of Herod, and so a lot of stone things. There was a hippodrome, um, and it wasn't destroyed by the Romans because the Jews there supported Vespasian, so the city was spared, so we could still see a lot of it today. It was fascinating. There we saw a beautiful mosaic from the first century. And we climbed the steps and we sat, we sat on stones that were first century stones. And at Sephora, there were baths and a hippodrome, a place for horse racing. There were banquet halls. As in every Greek-influenced city, there was a huge amphitheater. And we crawled up into the amphitheater and we sat there on the stones and imagined Jesus himself in his youth may have labored there among those stones. Perhaps his very hands had touched the stone upon which we sat. You remember that day? Yeah, it was. I sat there and I thought about Peter. And something Peter said to Jesus and something Jesus said to Peter. It's ironic that Jesus was probably a stone worker, but when Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration suggests a building project of stone, remember that? Let's say like three tabernacles here. Jesus didn't take his suggestion. It's so like, Peter, be quiet. This is my beloved son. Here you have. Remember that? Yeah, Peter, sit down. Yeah. Jesus wasn't really interested like Herod in building things with stones that would survive the centuries in ruins. Because Jesus was doing something that would be living stones. That would go on in a most powerful way. That we're the product of that. His enduring influence would be much greater. And it would be much like his enduring influence would be through young men. And women, like Peter. He says to Peter at one time when they go up into Caesarea Philippi, you're, you're Peter the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They were at a place that they called the gates of hell. It was a dark place of terrible pagan ritualistic worship, which I would not describe in mixed company. It was horrible. Jesus takes his disciples there, wades in and says, Peter, we're going to build the church on the gates of hell. will not prevail against us. Jesus had something bigger in mind, bigger in mind than just leaving historic ruins. And he had something bigger in mind than just having people adore him as a baby. This we see when our hearts wrap themselves around Revelation 1, 
He had something bigger in mind. Jesus was going to be much more than a footnote in history. His legacy was going to be much more than a dry, dusty, ancient archaeological dig. His plan was a living legacy, an eternally living legacy. His plan would transcend Greek culture. It would transcend Jewish culture. It would transcend Roman influence. Every nation, every tribe, and every tongue would be touched by Jesus. To redeem men and women from every tribe on earth was his plan. His plan was to capture the hearts of people all over the earth, voluntarily, miraculously. His plan was that his influence would grow and that, it, that he would have praise like he deserves from every language until praise would ring out throughout heaven from every tongue. At Christmas, we do love to think about the infancy of Jesus. It's wonderful to think about it. I love to think. And who doesn't love a baby? Sometimes we talk about prophecies predicting the birth of Jesus, and they are many. It's always good, too, to think about the future of this wonderful baby. And the Bible is not silent about that. One of the most wonderful places to read, this is, by the way, the world's longest sermon introduction you just endured. Um, one of the most wonderful places to read about the future of Jesus is the last book of the Bible. The apocalypse, the unveiling, the revelation of Somebody says, oh, I know what that is. That's the book where end times are revealed. Well, not if you really understand what the book is not revealing end times. The purpose of the book is to reveal Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me read this. Let me read parts of this again because it's just too wonderful not to read again. This is in Revelation 1 and verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You can say amen any point here. Just pretend you're Baptist, even if you're not, okay? Just at any point you want to say amen. If that, you know, you don't have to. You can just like smile inside. You can go, oh yeah. You can just feel it. This is sweet. This is sweet. John said, I mean, just imagine this isn't just like little ink on a page that we read like, like a, you know, 2.30 in the afternoon in a boring history class in high school. This is the living God, Jesus, the King of Kings. John says, the last time I saw him, he was beaten beyond recognition. And now he's risen again. I see him as re his resurrected. This is the vision on Patmos of a, a resurrected. Remember, this is the pastor working a rock pile. And he sees a revelation, an unveiling, an apocalypse of Jesus. And so he says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins when he shed his blood on the cross. <laughs> he made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He had something bigger in mind than being chained out like a puppy in the backyard and given the scraps of our affection from time to time. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He takes dominion over everything. Every tongue on earth will one day acknowledge that he is God. I'm the alpha. And as behold, he's coming in clouds. Revelator. He's coming in clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation of the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the aisle 
called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Whose voice? It's red letters. Jesus, write what you see in a book, send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Bethel Church. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I'm turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs on his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, yeah, I fell at his feet as though dead. Yeah, there you go. This is a little baby. This is a little cherubic, round-faced baby Jesus, all grown up. This is the, this is the, the, the full portrait of, of Jesus in the Bible. Notice just a few things. Notice his authority. Even if you don't fully, if you don't even fully decode all these symbols with precision, you can see this is speaking of great, great authority, absolute authority, dominion, power, authority. He, he, think of, notice the, the references to eternity. This is universal authority forever. This is Jesus, who is God, very God of very God, creator of the world, receives the worship throughout eternity of all the world. And notice the universal acknowledgement of who he is. Do you ever feel like people treat Jesus like an adorable puppy? Are you ever tempted to kind of do that? Jesus the infant is adorable and he's attractive, but when he grows up, they put him on the chain in the backyard and they throw him a scrap of affection and attention occasionally. He's no longer cute to them. He loses their attention. He loses their affection. We can be pretty shallow in our love for Jesus. It's like puppy love. I think we all would have to say, it's easy, it's easy to say, I want Jesus on my own terms. I want him when I need him. I want him when I like him. But then to see him as the one who sets the whole agenda for everything in the universe, including your life, your marriage, how you conduct your affairs, your schedule, that, that's, that's a little more thought-provoking. But that's the picture of Jesus in the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is not just a cute puppy or a chubby baby or a sentimental feeling one month out of the year. He's the king of the ages. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. When he comes to reign on earth, he comes with eyes of fire, hair white as snow, armies and saints on every side. He is a picture of authority and of might and of eternal power and universal acceptance. And when you fast forward through the drama of history to the end, you read the last chapter of history, the babe of Bethlehem is the king of heaven and every eye will see him and every tongue will confess he's Lord. Jesus will return again and he will establish an eternal throne. This is not a myth. This is, just not, this is just an old myth that people resurrect so that they can eat more food or exchange gifts. It's, the, it's space and time history truth. And so we, so we, look, to, we look to the past 
and we hear of these wonderful, glorious things in the past, beggars the imagination and rankles our faith, trust our faith. Why God, could that possible virgin born? It's an it's a, a amazing mystery to think of, just to think of it. But he's not done. He's coming back. And, and to compare the advents, the first coming, you know, he comes to suffer. The second coming, he comes to reign. And the first coming, you know, he comes to die. And the second coming, he comes to live forever and sweep all the saints with him and sweep all of his enemies into judgment and all his friends into heaven. And in the first coming, you know, they spit in his face and they mock him. And the second coming, he comes in power and great glory. And the first coming, he's the baby of a little maiden in, in Palestine. And, and in the second coming, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. There's another coming. There's an advent yet, an unveiling of Jesus yet to, to come. Now, now, the question like today would be, hmm, how should one conduct oneself in the light of this truth? How should one live? How should one feel on the day after all the Christmas fun is tucked away, yet Jesus still is coming, King of kings, Lord of lords, the truth of Christmas, the great truth of Christmas, the, the lordship of Jesus Christ, that God came down. That's as true today as it was yesterday morning. That's why Jesus walked out on the day after the feast was over and all the lights were taken down and all the menorah were no longer burning, the life-size menorah. And he said on that day in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. On the day after Christmas, Jesus is still the light of the world. I love that. And so, I like Fernando Ortega. Have I ever mentioned that to you? I like, I like Fernando Ortega. Somebody said, Fernando Ortega was in an interview one time, and he said, I kind of like, I kind of like, I, I, people say I sing a little bit like James Taylor. And I thought, huh. <laughs> I thought about that. Well, I, the last time I remember hearing about James Taylor was Mr. Todd in junior high. He's kind of a hippie teacher we had, and he wanted, to, he wanted to be called Mr. Todd. His name was Todd, but he wasn't allowed to be called Todd. So he said, you can call me Mr. Todd. It was just all kind of cool. You know, he's like, and he told us about James Taylor. And uh, James Taylor's stories and the stories behind his songs, Fire and Rain, and the troubles in his life. And, you know, he's had trouble with drug abuse and he's had trouble with broken marriages. He's taken responsibility for that. A pretty neat guy, but, but not untroubled. Mr. Todd told us about James Taylor, and that's the last I thought about him. But I thought, well, if Fernando says he's good, maybe I'll get one of his albums. So it was Christmas time. And I picked up a James Taylor Christmas album. Yeah, exactly right. And I was up on Route 23, south of Flint, driving to Ann Arbor when I put the CD. It was a couple years ago. I put the CD in my car and listened to James Taylor. It's some pretty sweet Christmas music. One of the things he did was he interpreted Christina Rossetti's beautiful Christmas song in the bleak midwinter. And I remember driving down that road in the winter and the snow coming down and hearing James Taylor beautifully sing Heaven cannot hold him, nor can earth contain. Heaven and earth will melt away when he comes to reign. And I thought, I wonder if James Taylor understands what he sang. Does he believe? I wonder if he believes Jesus Christ, who was born in a manger, the subject of Christmas songs, does he believe that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth? I wondered if James Taylor believed what he was singing. Now, James has a younger brother. Did you know this? His name is Livingston. He's often mistaken for James. B, you know all this, don't you? Yeah, yeah. They look at, and they sound remarkably alike. Livingston is a devout 
believer, so we know that James has been exposed to the gospel in his own family among people he loves. James battled depression terribly in his youth. He's had much sorrow and difficulty in his life. He was a heroin addict for a while, hurt his marriage. He admits that today, tried to make it right. He's had to endure the pain of divorce. And though he and three of his siblings abstained totally from alcohol, his father, who they all loved much, battled alcoholism all his life, and his older brother Alex died, unable to loosen the grip of alcohol in his life. So when I read these stories and I listen to James Taylor singing about Jesus is the king every year, I always think, he seems like he'd be a neat guy to meet. I wonder if I met him, I think I would like him a lot. But what does he really believe about Jesus? I just think about that sometimes. Does he believe that Jesus is very God of very God? Does James Taylor believe that, does he understand that what the song he's singing is really true? Does he get it? You know, does he get it? You and I may never be able to answer that question. I don't think James, I mean, Fernando won't meet with me. I don't think James Taylor will meet with me either. I had to actually preach about Fernando Ortega, and then he and his daughter watched it, and he apologized, but he still hasn't set up a meeting with me. I don't think I'm going to get to meet with James Taylor anytime soon and get the answer to my question, does James Taylor get it? But, of course, the real question is, do you get it? Do I get it? How deeply do I get it? that Jesus is the King of kings, that heaven cannot hold him, that earth cannot contain him. Heaven and earth will melt away when he comes to reign. That's the question. Do you get it? And do the people that you influence get it? And the people that you love, do they get it? And the people that you influence, do they get it? And the people that live next to your door to you, do they get it? I went, one, one day, I was burdened about a trailer park where my church was. And I had a day, everybody was out of town, I was alone. I grabbed a, pot, a bunch of New Testaments and invitations to our church's Christmas Eve service, and I went to the trailer park, and I walked door to door. And this is knocking on doors, talking to people about, you know, if they wanted to talk about Jesus, if they would take, they were so kind to me. They were, I got a little gift for you, it's a Bible. And most people were just really warm and kind. One lady goes, there's a guy named Mike that lives over there, and you probably ought to go see him. I'm like, okay. She had a real serious look on her face. She said, he's going through some stuff. I go, what happened? She said, his wife had diabetes in childhood. Diabetes. She died, and he has a little baby girl. He's over there with his little baby girl, and he's trying to deal with that. He, he probably would appreciate you visiting him. And I went over there, and I met Mike at Christmas, a young widower with a little tiny girl standing there listening to us. And I wonder, I wonder if Mike gets it and how much Mike needs to get it a couple days later, I decided I'd walk through my neighborhood. I'd give away Bibles to people in my neighborhood, New Testaments for Christmas, and invite them. I knocked on one door about six, eight houses away. A lady came to the door. She said, I'm really sorry right now. I can't buy anything. can't talk right now. My, we've had a tragedy in our family. I said, oh, I'm sorry. No, I wasn't coming to sell you anything. I was just going to give you a little Christmas gift, but I'll go. She said, oh, thanks for stopping by. No, my nephew was up, on, up north of Ann Arbor last night. Got involved in, a, in an automobile. He was 23. He died. She said, we're just we're just crushed. They were Christians. I said, can I pray with you? She's so grateful. I prayed. Then I went next door. The lady next door lived in an immaculate house. I always noticed, matter of fact, Lois would always point out how neat, how hard her husband worked and how neat her house was. 
Do I say, wow, he really, that's a good, you remember that one? It'd be like a little bit like, I think, I, I think that was a cue that I'm supposed to rake the leaves right now. And she did such a, they did such a good, he did such a good job. Their house was perfect. The glass was never dirty. There was never a leaf in the yard. I knocked on her door. She came to the door and she looked really sad. She goes, I'm so glad you've come by. I said, well, we admire your place. We admire your husband, all the hard work he does. My wife is always throwing him up to me. And she says, well, he died two weeks ago. Oh, I said, I'm so sorry. She said, I just don't know what to think. And she needed somebody to teach her what the Bible says. I mean, I went in her house and opened the New Testament and taught her what the Bible says about life and death right there on our street, right next door to the lady whose nephew died. Death is a bitter enemy. Sin is a bitter enemy. Time, the brevity of time is a bitter enemy. Even like Christmas being over so fast, you kind of got to hate that. But Jesus, if we believe, if we know who he is and trust who he is, he's the answer to the enemy of death. He's the answer to the enemy of sin. He's the answer to the brevity of life. He's the answer to all that. He always will be. Do you get it? Do, do the people that you influence, do they, is there anything you can do to help them get it? You never know. I know I've told you before, I got a call from Bobby, my little nephew. His mom's a drug addict. She's so messed up. Grandma can't really help him that much. He didn't get any Christmas presents yesterday. I wanted to take him to camp. His mom said he couldn't go. I wanted to pay his way to camp. His mom said he couldn't go. There's a little church in her town, a little Southern Baptist church. doesn't have a pastor, and they meet a storefront. Somehow they figured out he was there, and they invited him to camp, and he went and got saved. He is saved. They baptized him a few months ago. He called me on the phone. He said, Uncle Ken, I just want to tell you, they're taking me to a Christian retreat this weekend after Christmas, going to Gatlinburg to a Christian retreat. They're going to hear that Zach, the guy who sang on the little video, the little upbeat video with Zach Williams, he's going to be, his band is going to be down there. Bobby's going to get to hear him. I, it made me wonder, you know, if there are little Bobbies that live around here somewhere that we can somehow, if we could meet them and we could invite them, we could help them get it. You know, in a way, I think about, like, Lois has always made Christmas so beautiful at our house. She did it yesterday. She got up early. It was just the two of us. She made this beautiful breakfast, bacon and everything. Every week, every day this week, I've been telling her, I've said, I don't smell any bacon. That's the oddest thing. She's like, they got it at McDonald's in Spring Arbor. Just drive over there pick it up. Well, I had seen the bacon in the refrigerator. I was like, when are we going to make the bacon? You know, I'm a responsible person. Let's get the bacon made. Let me waste good food like that. It was for Christmas morning. Here we are, little empty nesters sitting on both ends of a long table with nobody in between. And we had a first class Christmas breakfast. And we had some guests that come over and and then there were decorations just everywhere around the little house. It's adorable. Lois would never think of letting Christmas slip up on her without being ready for it. She makes sure everybody has a gift. She makes sure everything is decorated. She makes sure the roast is on. We had a wicked mean roast yesterday. And we had bacon in the morning and roast in the afternoon. <laughs> I was just thinking about how sweet it was that she worked so hard. I sat in my chair and listen to Christmas music. I, I'm being honest. I know you don't want to listen to me anymore. 
and, and I thought she worked all morning to make a beautiful, uh, she sent me on a few little, little tiny errands I did, but, but without complaining, of course. And, um, uh, and she, got, she got ready for that. And then I was thinking, if we would get ready for Christmas, we should be ready for Christ. He's yet to come. And the people that got ready, they would be wise people. Yeah, we knew this was going to happen. We read his word. The la- that's where the Bible ends. Jesus is coming. Be ready. Go tell, go tell it to somebody else. Everybody, everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Do, do you guys that are old timers, you remember singing that? Put, put, the, put those up there. Put the, 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 the words up there. Sing this with me if you're, if you're old as Methuselah and you remember this. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Sing it again. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Follow me to this lower key. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000. Everybody ought to know. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born.